Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that's the text for this morning. The title of the message is this, What Christmas Teaches Us About Our Purpose. And what is our purpose? I've subtitled it there in your notes. Our purpose is joyful worship. Our purpose is to know God and to make Him known. What Christmas teaches us about our purpose, that is joyful worship. But Christmas teaches us many things. I don't know if you've ever really considered what Christmas teaches us, what the message of Christmas teaches us. Christmas teaches us first, this isn't on your notes, just give me your ears for just a few minutes here. Christmas teaches us about man's problem, that is our sin. Ever consider that? Christmas teaches us about man's problem. Primarily our sin problem. It seems like sin isn't that fitting of a subject and we're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Christ. But it's the birth of Christ, precisely, that reveals the immensity of our sin problem and our separation from God. You ever considered this? The fact that we all experience discontentment in life, loneliness, bitterness, emptiness, and so on and so forth, those are all indicators. Those are all warning flags, so to speak, that we put our hope in things that were never meant to satisfy us. Discontentment, disillusionment, loneliness, bitterness, emptiness, unhappiness. Every time we experience one of those, it's, it's an indicator that we have anchored or tethered our hope to something that was never meant to give us hope. Never meant to satisfy the deepest longings and desires of our hearts. Jeremiah 2.13 reminds us that we have worshipped and served things other than God, and in doing so, we are left empty-hearted and empty-handed every single time, ravaged by the effects of sin. Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living waters, number one, and they've dug broken cisterns for themselves, cisterns that can't hold water. When, when you dig a cistern that is, is marred with cracks, it will leave you empty. It holds no water. And such is the case when we try to anchor or tether our hope in anything other than Christ alone will be empty, left empty-hearted and empty-handed every single time without exception. Sin brings temporary pleasure, but it always leaves us empty. See, Christmas teaches us that our sin is heinous enough to merit the crushing of God's Son, the, the, the language of Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. While we were alienated and separated from God without hope because of our misworship or because of our false worship of other things, God in his unfathomable grace gave us his son, Jesus, who would come and save his people from their sin. You see, Christmas teaches us a lot about man's problem, our sin problem. But Christmas teaches us all about God's great provision that provision of a Savior. You see, it's only against the dark backdrop of our sin that we can see and appreciate God's provision of a Savior. We see no need for a Savior if we're not broken, hopeless, and lost, dead in our sins and trespasses first. It's only when we have a clear realization of who we are and what we were that we come to to appreciate what God has given us in His Son. You see, only talking about the Savior, apart from talking about sin, is like boarding an airplane and trying to convince the person sitting next to you that he or she needs to wear a parachute for the duration of the flight. I mean, upon hearing your recommendation, just picture it for a minute. You sit down on on the Southwest Airlines, you sit down on the Delta Airlines, and you try to convince the person sitting right to your right or right to your left that he or she needs to put on and wear a parachute for the duration of the flight. Upon hearing your recommendation, that person might look at you and think that you'd lost your mind. 
As he or she sat there and considered in the quiet of their own mind what others might think about them or what others might say about them as they sat there for hours affixed to a parachute, their perception of their dignity in that moment might seem more valuable than any potential risk. But take that same person sitting to your right or sitting to your left and tell them that most of the rivets holding the leading edge of the wing on are loose and they'll gladly take that parachute and wear it. And they won't concern themselves in the slightest what others may think or say about them. You see, apart from a clear understanding of our sin, a Savior seems foolish. But when we understand the weight of our guilt and the weight of our sin before a holy God, we become thankful for the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is our perfect sacrifice. It's then that we can sing with Isaac Watts, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. You see, Christmas teaches us that we have a loving God who has provided for our greatest need, namely the forgiving of our sin in Christ. But Christmas not only teaches us about man's greatest problem, sin, Christmas not only teaches us about God's great provision, Jesus Christ, our Savior, but Christmas teaches us about our great, glorious purpose in life. And that purpose is that we were created, if you're taking notes, you want to jot this down, we were created to worship. Christmas teaches us that we were created to worship. Christmas not only teaches us about our sin problem and about God's gracious provision of a Savior, but it also teaches us how we should respond to God's provision in joyful worship. You know, our purpose or our chief end, according to the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let me just ask If that were to be your epitaph on your gravestone one day, would it be an accurate representation of the one who lay there? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that what you're living for? Does that accurately characterize your life? One man said, worship is man's response to God's grace. And I would wholeheartedly affirm that. Worship is the response to God's grace. Worship is the response when we see our sin against the backdrop of God's holiness and then we come to understand that He graciously sent His Son to bear our burden. You see, Christmas reminds us that we, are, we were all estranged from God. We were His enemies because of our sin. But God, being rich in His mercy, just like Paul wrote to us in Ephesians, because of the great love for which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. You see, that, brothers and sisters, should make our hearts overflow with joy, adoration, thanksgiving, and praise. Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I find a lot in this narrative that I'd like to walk us through this morning that I think will lead us to adoration and humble worship. We'll stop at several points along the way in our journey this morning, and I'll point out to you some ways that we can can worship our glorious King. Let me have you stand with us this morning as we read God's Word together. Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, pins the following words. 
Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Now, Herod, the king, heard this. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And so you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You may be seated. I want to take you on a journey this morning with the Magi. This journey spans verses 1 through 11. Let me draw your attention back to verses 1 and 2 here for just a moment. Look at your Bible with me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Here's what they said. Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so the journey begins. As Matthew opens his post-birth narrative of Christ, he sets the stage with two groups of characters. Did you notice there as we read? Herod, the sickly king of Judah, and wise men from the east. And let's press pause on Herod for just a moment. Let's talk about these wise men that traveled to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. Who were these wise men or who were these magi? Do we really know? Our songs tell us a few things about them. Some things that our Bible may not affirm. But what do we know about these guys? Well, the Magi were a highly educated cast of priests in the Persian Empire. They were prominent figures in the religious arena, and they, and they uh, though themselves were not kings, contrary to our popular tradition, they oftentimes served as political advisors to various kings. They were brilliant men. They were trained in medicine, in history, in religion, in astronomy, and in astrology, amongst other things. They were students of the sky, stargazers, you might say of them. Not only did they study the stellar expanse seeking to understand how the heavens operated, which they would often be found doing, but as astrologists, they oftentimes looked at the stars seeking answers for this life and for the next. Being from in the area or around the area of Persia, we know that these wise men traveled an incredibly long distance to come and see the newborn king. 
I mean, the straight line distance, as, as the bird flies, the straight line distance from Babylon to Jerusalem is somewhere in the ballpark of 500 miles. But the typical caravan route would have probably led the wise men northeast along the Euphrates River towards Syria and then south. I know you may or may not have a picture of the region in your head here. But then south along the Mediterranean Sea towards Bethlehem. Now, this distance was not the way that the crow would fly. This this particular route that was oftentimes traveled would have encompassed something well over 900 miles. This was no trip. uh, This trip wasn't a walk in the ballpark to say the least. It was long, it was costly, and it was dangerous. I mean, think about it this way. At at, at a rate of 20 miles a day, it would have taken the wise men some 45 days to reach Jerusalem from Persia. Let me ask you this question, friends. What does our pursuit of Jesus look like? What does our pursuit of Jesus look like daily? Are we willing to pursue him no matter the cost? As Gentiles, the wise men, the magi, as Gentiles with their own religious distinctives, how did the wise men connect the star that they saw to the birth of the king of the Jews? You ever considered that? Wise men were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. Have you ever considered how did they connect then the star that they saw with the birth of the king of the Jews? Well, there were a large number of Jews who had remained in and around Babylon after they had been exiled there. Though the wise men were Gentile pagans, they were probably well acquainted as a result with Jewish beliefs, including the anticipation of the coming Messiah. It's very possible even that these wise men here were aware of Balaam's prophecy way back in, in Numbers. Anybody ever read through the book of Numbers in your Bible? Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, typically when we begin to read through the Bible, we we end up stopping somewhere in there. Let me encourage you, if you're reading through your Bible, trudge on through those challenging books. But way back in Numbers, there was a prophecy about Christ. Numbers 24, 17. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It's very probable that these wise men, because of their proximity to exiled Jews, would have been aware of this particular prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. Having been aware of this prophecy, when the star arose, they set out in hopes of following it. Remember, they were astrologers and astronomers, dazzled by what they saw in the heavens. They would have set out to follow it in hopes of bringing gifts to the new king. Look at verses 3 through 6 with me. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, heading out in the right direction, but unaware of Jesus' specific whereabouts, the wise men traveled into the capital city of Jerusalem. They must have thought to themselves, just just track with me here, Jerusalem is a city to the Jews. Surely, as they they 
caravan into Jerusalem, they would have thought to themselves, there will be people here who will be able to point us to the Messiah, that will be able to tell us where to find him. But that isn't what the wise men found when they arrived in town. Instead, they found that their arrival angered a sick and dying King Herod, first of all. It's interesting to note, some of our stories, some of our Christmas stories and Christmas songs speak about three wise men. But it's highly unlikely that three lone men would have set out on this massive journey alone. Though we aren't sure of the exact number, uh, it's very probable that there would have been somewhere in the ballpark of 200 people in this caravan with the wise men. As you can imagine, this group of Gentile strangers would have definitely raised eyebrows and turned heads as they strolled into Jerusalem. I mean, keep in mind, they are Gentile pagans, okay? They would have raised eyebrows. It would have raised a lot of questions as they came kicking dust up into Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that when Herod was made aware of the entourage in town, that he came to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. But notice in the text there, it says that Herod was troubled. He was troubled. Uh, The Greek word here for troubled means to shake with anxiety. literally means to be paranoid. Here's the picture. Herod at this point, by the way, he's a sickly king. Okay, And here he is troubled. He's perplexed. He's paranoid, shaking with anxiety. And I think that Herod was troubled for a couple of reasons. First, Herod was fearful of invasion from the east. And here comes this entourage of some 200 people, these Gentile pagans from the east. It would have given reason for concern. King Herod. But I think that Herod was also threatened by the thought of a competing king. Not only the threat of, inv- of invasion from the east, but the threat of a competing king, someone w- who would compete for his throne. And so Herod, not knowing himself where the child had been born, he assembled the chief priests and the scribes, hoping that they would know where to find Jesus. Now it's interesting to note here how, how Herod would have been unaware of Jewish prophecy is hard to understand because the Gentile pagan magi were aware of Jewish prophecy. Prophecy, how Herod would have been unaware of Jewish prophecy is hard to understand, but the religious leaders were unaware, unaware that Micah's prophecy, some 700 years earlier, said that a ruler and a shepherd of God's people would be born where? In Bethlehem. How Herod was unaware of that. Every prophecy concerning the coming Messiah was literally fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. You ever thought about that? Every single prophecy concerning the coming Messiah was literally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What a, what a faithful God we serve. God is certainly faithful to his word, is he not? We have the picture here. Coming all the way from Persia, not the way the crow flies, but according to the trade route, these magi, these wise men would have traveled somewhere in the ballpark of 900 miles, not just three like most of our songs tell us, but probably a whole entourage of somewhere around 200 individuals would have accompanied uh, these wise men. Here they, the pagan Gentiles, stroll into Jerusalem hoping to find uh, word about where they could find the Christ child, and no one knows even though Micah's prophecy 
700 years prior, said that Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And so here you have a shaking in his boots, King Herod. Okay? Let's continue the journey here in verse 7 and 8. Look at your Bible with me. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. You see, shaken, Herod, he's perplexed. He's shaken. Herod is now plotting in his mind how he might be able to eliminate this threat of his throne. So in a secret meeting, he asked the wise men what time they had seen the star uh, rise that had led them to Jerusalem. You see, though Herod said that he wanted to honor Jesus and that he wanted to come worship Jesus, we know that Herod had no intentions on worshiping Jesus. But God isn't going to allow an angry, tyrannical king to stand in the way of his redemptive plan, is he? No. No way, no how. Remember, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Notice the two responses to the Savior, by the way. Notice the two responses to King Jesus. Herod despised Jesus and wanted to kill him. While the wise men were seeking Jesus and desired to worship him. You see, aren't these the two responses to Jesus today? I mean, these are the two responses that we see on the college campus. These are the two responses that we see in the workplace. These are the two responses that we see in our neighborhoods. These are the two responses that we see at school, young ones. Sometimes these are the two responses that we see even amongst members of our own family. These are the two responses to Christ. Some hate him and some desire to worship him. We see the exact same thing today. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. After listening to the king, Herod, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that statement, by the way. They rejoiced exceedingly. That's like overflowing with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You see, after the wise men left Herod, the star that had led them to Jerusalem, it reappeared in the sky. And then it led them to the house where Jesus was. Now, there's some interesting things here. The word star in verses 2 and verse 9 It's the Greek word aster, okay? The word star there. It appears in verse 2, it appears in verse 9. It's the Greek word aster. It's a pretty general word. It just means any luminous body. Anything that lights up could basically fall under the category of aster here. The general word for any luminous body in the sky. The Bible teachers have speculated as to the nature of the star. Some have proposed that it was a comet or a supernova. Others have said that it was a conjunction of planets, probably a Jupiter and Saturn in the sky, and so appeared to be very bright. 
But I'm not convinced that these two are the best answers. And the reason I tell you that is because if, if you read uh, commentaries on Matthew chapter 2, you'll see, you'll see that from time to time. Some, some uh, Bible commentators, some Bible teachers will, will propose that uh, it, was, it was a supernova or it was a comet that, that God used, uh, but that led the, the wise men uh, to Bethlehem. Some will say it was the, lining, the aligning of a couple uh, large uh, uh, planets, but I'm, I'm not convinced that that's the best answer. And the reason I'm not convinced that's the best answer is because notice that the star appears and then disappears, and then it moves. It appears, then disappears, and moves, if you look at verses 2 through 9 there. I'm more persuaded, and though this is a hill that I'm not willing to die on, okay, I'm more persuaded that what the wise men saw was either an angel or the glory of God. You know, it's interesting to know that the Hebrew word seraph, it means burning ones burning ones. And what do we see all throughout the Old Testament? What do we see encircling the throne, worshiping Jehovah in Revelation? We see the seraphim and the cherubim, literally the burning ones, angels. Angels were guides in the Old Testament. Speaking of leading or guiding Israel to Canaan, God said this, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Exodus chapter 23. It could have also been that God supernaturally revealed some of his glory to the wise men. Remember in the Old Testament, God led Israel, God led his people Israel by revealing some of his glory to them. Remember he led them in the wilderness in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of what by night? Fire. A pillar of fire by night. At the end of the day, we don't know exactly what this light in the sky was, but we do learn, we can learn, that God can use whatever means he wants to lead a person to Jesus. That's the takeaway there. God can use whatever means he wants to lead a person to Jesus. Now, let me qualify that in saying, uh, Romans ten seventeen tells us that faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of God. So for a person to become converted, they have to hear the gospel message. But the means of leading a person to the word, or leading a person to the word became flesh, Jesus Christ himself, God can use any means. Think about your own conversion if you're sitting here this morning. How how did God lead you to King Jesus? To the place where you heard the gospel and then believed and turned from your sin. God can use whatever means he wants to lead a person to Jesus. In this case, he led a bright, luminous body in the sky to cause a group of Gentile pagans to come see the one who was born king of the Jews. We also see God's wisdom and grace in reaching out to the Gentiles. I mean, God used the wise men or the Magi's broken system for discovering truth. Remember I said that the wise men, they were astrologers and astronomers. They looked to the sky, they looked to the stars to try to figure out the answers to life's biggest questions. Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? They looked to the stars for those answers. And isn't it interesting that God used these Gentile pagans' own broken system for finding truth to lead them to the one, capital O, who is truth. It's interesting to know that the Jews who had the scriptures and were only six miles north in Jerusalem were completely uninterested in the birth of Christ. While the Magi, Gentiles, pagans from far away are coming to worship the king of the Jews. You know, you've heard me mention 
from time to time, I think one of the greatest dangers to our spiritual lives is becoming desensitized to the truths and the realities of the gospel. I mean, in the Jews' case here, they, they had all the prophecies. They had the revealed word of God. They were, they, they, they were taught the Old Testament scriptures from, from their youth. And I think there's a sense in which it just became normal. It just became another story. But here you have the pagan Gentiles from the East who didn't have the scriptures. And God leads him to the one who leads them to the one who is truth. You know, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said this. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, talking about the truths of the gospel. You see, as astrologers, these wise men's practices would have fallen under the umbrella of science. But isn't it neat that the picture that we see here is that of the science of the day bowing before King Jesus. We see the science of the day here in this text bowing before Jesus in humble adoration. Matthew says that as the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, they saw the star reappear in the sky. As you can imagine, they were probably somewhat weary from their long trip, again, somewhere in the ballpark of 900 to 1,000 miles by, by caravan, by foot, or by riding on camelback. Probably weary from their long trip, seeing the star that they knew that they were close to finding the king. I wonder what the wise men thought as they crossed the threshold of the door of the house where Jesus and his parents were living. By the way, think back to many of our Christmas songs. Where was Jesus born? Where was Jesus staying? Here in Matthew's account of the Gospels, Jesus and his parents were at least temporarily residing in a house. And there before the Magi was a helpless child. They're coming to worship the King of the Jews, and as they cross the threshold of the house, they see Mary holding a child. As they looked at him, they were looking into the eyes of the king of kings. As they looked into his eyes, they saw something of the radiance of God's glory. The Lord of the universe, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, holy, eternal, dwelling in unapproachable light, king of kings. And yet, Jesus wasn't dressed like nobility. He didn't reside in a castle. There was no scepter in his hand or crown on his head. He wasn't sitting on a throne, and he had no armies at his command. Yet, he was king. King of the universe. King of the created cosmos. The very one who back in in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 spoke ex nihilo and created all that we see out of nothing. Though Jesus couldn't walk or talk, the wise men saw a king. And though they probably didn't understand that they were looking into the eyes of deity, that is God in the flesh, they nonetheless responded like anyone who understood they were in the presence of a king would respond. And that is they fell down and they worshipped him. I mean, think back for a second. Every movie that you've ever seen, when someone comes uh, in, in close proximity to the king, what do they do? They take a knee. They bow a knee before the king. And it's exactly what we see taking place here with the wise men. 
How do they respond? They respond like anyone responds who is in the presence of a king. They fall down and worship him. The word worship here, it's, it's the Greek word proskuneo. It literally means to, to, to bow down in reverence, to fall prostrate before. This is a fitting response for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let me ask you this question, friends. Have you bowed your heart, proskuneo, before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Young people, that'd be a good question to write there on your paper. Have you bowed your heart? Have you come in humble faith and repentance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? All eternity hangs on your answer to that question. You know, it's interesting. Track with me here for just a moment, okay? Just follow me. In Matthew chapter 4, just before beginning his public ministry, Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And Satan told him that if he would proskuneo, same word there in Matthew 4, if, he would, if Jesus would bow down before him, then he, Satan, would give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. I mean, Satan said this, I will give you all of these if you will fall down, proskuneo, and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Okay? Just keep that in your mind there for a moment. Track with me. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was sent to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to him and his family. And in verses 24 through 26, Acts 10, 24 through 26, we learn this. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped proskuneo, him. But Peter lifted him up, him up saying, stand up, for I too am a man. Keep tracking with me here. Just four chapters later in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are ministering in Lystra when they come across a man who is crippled from birth. And noticing from across the way that this man was listening to them, Paul looked intently at him and said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And then the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, that is Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying, here's the point, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Don't worship us. Keep tracking with me here. In Revelation chapter 19, John's writing about his vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what he pens. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. But let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride, that's the church, by the way, His bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is, linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Hey, when the angel says to you, write this, you get your pen ready. Okay? Write this. Blessed are those who invite, or are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pause there. Will you be there? Will you be there? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship, proskuneo him, to the angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's the response from the angel, by the way. Now, here. In Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men droop themselves in humble adoration to worship the infant Christ, the King, friends, there is no rebuke. Why? Why is there no rebuke here? Why is there no, get up, stand up? Because the response is absolutely fitting. That's why. There is no redirection of their worship. Why? Because they're doing what is right. They're worshiping the only one with whom worship is due. They're reverencing the only one whom blessing and honor and glory and power and majesty and dominion and praise and authority are to be rightly ascribed. See, though the text doesn't tell us anything about the wise men recognizing the deity of Christ, Matthew Matthew, the gospel writer here, wants us to see that their response to the majesty of the king, that being of adoration and humble worship, is right. Now, are we in the same posture of humble adoration and worship? They bow a knee before him and they offer gifts in worship. That's often been... Understood. It's long been understood that these three gifts that are, that are given symbolized who Jesus was and what he would become. So I want to kind of walk us through here for just a, we have one minute and 59 seconds. Okay, we're going, to, we're going to do it as quickly as we can. But I want to show you something about the significance of the wise men's gifts to King Jesus. Okay? First, we see them bringing gold. Well, gold is for the true king. Gold is for royalty. Gold is one of the most precious and costly metals known to man. It's long been the symbol of nobility and wealth. And it's fitting that the wise men would bring gold as a gift to Jesus, who is the king. You see, Jesus' kingship, if you've ever studied through the book of Matthew, Jesus' kingship is the theme, it's the overarching theme of Matthew's gospel. You see, we are to worship and adore King Jesus. You can write this down, the King of kings. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. We should note that Jesus will not be your Savior if he is not recognized as your Lord. Jesus won't be your Savior if he's not recognized as your Lord. The 18th century British Admiral Lord Nielsen was known for treating his opponents with unmatched courtesy and kindness. After one naval victory, a defeated officer strode confidently across the quarterdeck of Nielsen's ship and offered the admiral his hand. Remember, this is a defeated foe. Offered the general his hand. With his own hand remain, or with his other hand remaining at his side. And Nielsen replied, Your sword first, sir, and then your hand. 
your sword first and then your hand. You see, before we can be Christ's friends, we must be his subjects. He must be our Lord before he can be our elder brother. Let me ask you this, friends. Is he the king of your heart? Is he the Lord of your life? And we don't make him Lord when we come to know Christ. We just surrender and submit to what he already is. How about frankincense here? Frankincense for our great high priest. Frankincense, it's a white resin or sap that's gathered from trees in Arabia. It was harvested by making incisions in the bark of the tree and then waiting for the sap to flow out and harden. It was a laborious process. And because of of the time that it took to to harvest it and because of its great fragrant, fragrant smell, it was a highly prized and costly possession. Because of its cost, it was used only for the most special of occasions. Matter of fact, the high priest would oftentimes burn it in temple worship as an incense that was pleasing to God. We see that back in Exodus chapter 30. Frankincense was burned and it was a pleasing pleasing aroma to God. Well, the wise men's gift of frankincense is symbolic of Jesus' deity. You see, we are to worship and adore Jesus. You can write this down, our great high priest. Our great high priest The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, speaking about Jesus, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. For he has no need like those other high priests to offer offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of his people. For since he did this once, talking about his sacrifice, he offered himself up once and for all. Friends, let me ask you this question. Is Jesus your great high priest? And then how about myrrh? Myrrh for our sacrificing Savior. Lastly, the wise men brought Jesus this gift of myrrh. Like frankincense, myrrh is also a very fragrant uh, substance derived from tree sap, as a matter of fact. It was oftentimes used as a perfume, but but it also had several other practical uses. Matter of fact, in John chapter 15, just think with me for a second here, wine mixed with myrrh was what was offered to Jesus as an anesthetic as he hung on the cross. In John chapter 19, we're told that Nicodemus brought a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to prepare Jesus' body for burial. You see, the gift of myrrh symbolized the death of Christ. We adore and worship Jesus Christ, our sacrificing Savior. That child that lay in Mary's lap was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill and be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with its sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force crowns of thorns onto it. And that tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped and torn by spear. Jesus was born to die. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, as the Son said on Jesus' earthly ministry, he said this of himself. The Son of Man, again, Matthew 20, 28, came not to be served, but to give his life away. It's encouraging to note that when Isaiah writes about the return of Christ in Isaiah chapter 60, He says that people will bring, interestingly enough, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bring gold and incense 
or I'm sorry, let me, let me take you back here. In Isaiah chapter 60, this is important. Isaiah says that, that, that they will bring at Christ's return gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. But why no myrrh in Isaiah 60? Have you ever considered? Why no myrrh? They're to bring gold and frankincense, but why no myrrh? Well, there's no myrrh because the myrrh speaks of his death. You see, the next time Jesus comes, he won't come to die. He's coming to reign as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no myrrh at his return. And so what do we do, friends? Let's wrap it up. We are to worship Jesus for who he is. That's his person. Let me ask you this. Are you captivated by the splendor of his majesty? Are you in wonder at his creation? Are you thankful for his goodness and his mercy and his grace? Are you humbled by his holiness? Are you in awe of his immensity? Are you silenced by his manifold wisdom? Are you perplexed by his perfections? Do you bow before his supremacy? Do you adore his faithfulness? Do you reverence his sovereignty? Do you exalt his immutable character? Do you magnify his power, his glory, and his self-sufficiency? Do you celebrate his righteousness? His righteousness are those linens that the bride of Christ are clothed with, by the way. We worship him for what he's done as well. Jesus came to give sight to the blind, to set captives free from the prison of sin, to deal a a death blow to, to death and darkness, to cancel the legal demands of the law that stood in opposition and judgment against us. He came to be the faultless, obedient one that we were not, to reconcile to himself through his perfect blood those who were far off, to become our ransom and to claim us as his own, to secure our justification and to forgive our sin-scarred record, to impute his righteousness to our otherwise bankrupt accounts, to take away all condemnation for those who believe, to give us us a clear conscience and to free us to worship him in spirit and in truth, to free us from the futility and the love of sin that we once enjoyed, to enable us to live for him and not ourselves, to rescue us from his final judgment and to gain his joy and ours for eternity. That's just the scratch and sniff version of what Christ has done for us. That's who was laying in the manger. That's who was laying in the manger. We can say a few words about the infant, but we want to make much of the king laying there in the manger. Let me give you just the fill-ins for the last part here. We've talked about it in other messages before, but if you're taking notes, number three, Christmas reminds us that we will worship for all eternity. Worship is the occupation of heaven. So practice now what you'll be doing for all eternity.